You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. My six-year-old, sitting there going, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a tiger by the toe. And I'm sitting there going, how in the world did he learn this? How do, how do kids acquire this? It seems to be something that's just, they just know how to do, like breastfeeding or breathing or something like that. It's just there as Carson is trying to make a decision. And then it was as if all of my childhood memories start rushing back into my head about at least the, the, the one time, my, my crowning moment of participating in this game of eeny, meeny, miny, moe. I was trying to get the attention in fourth grade, not as a kindergartner, mind you, of this cute girl in my class named Teresa. And she was smart, she was popular, she was outgoing. She was somebody, you know, that the, the, you know, the fourth grade boys kind of wanted to, to, to be with. And I had a strategy, because I would ride my bike uh, to school, I'd ride it home, and, and often uh, Teresa and some other friends were on the route uh, that, that I pedaled home. And on this Thursday, I had my strategy. Okay, and the same, though Todd Hutt would surely be there, okay, and Todd was bigger than me, and no joke, Todd actually went on to be a male model. Okay, so I've got my hands full here. (laughs) But like David had a slingshot and a stone, I had eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and a Twinkie, and it was going to work for me. So I'm thinking, hey, I know that, that Teresa is going to want to share my hostess Twinkie with me, but I know Todd's going to want some too. But I'm just going to eeny, meeny, miny, mow it, and I'm figuring it out, right? I know that wherever I start is where the, the desired finish point. Well, the, the big moment comes, and I'm thinking, okay, hey, I'm going to share my Twinkie with somebody. Fear not. I was not going to just fully give it up, okay? Nobody gives up a full Twinkie. And I do my eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and sure enough, I get the desired outcome. Todd was on to me for sure, but I was, and he called me out on it. He was like, you knew exactly what, what you were doing. I was like, yeah, sure enough, I did. But it worked. I mean, it didn't pay off until about four years later. But uh, anyway, what, what am I getting at? In eeny, meeny, miny, moe, there's that, there's that line there at the end. My mother told me to pick the very best one. That somewhere as a young age, at a young age, we are coached about choosing, about making favorites, perhaps about showing partiality. And in the scripture that we come to today, as we continue a series that we've been looking at through the book of James called, How's That Working For You?, we come to the issue of showing favoritism and showing partiality. And James has a bit of a challenge for perhaps some of the ways that we have grown up using devices like eeny, meeny, miny, mo uh, to make our decisions. So once again today, we come to this series of questions that we hope will guide us as we seek to become more of a community of disciples. As we come to the the scripture uh, this morning, let's take a moment uh, to pray. Gracious and present God, illuminate your word for us that we may hear your word, that we may understand it, and that we would respond to it as you would have us do. God, we need your help and we know it. So be with us as we read together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, I want to invite you to grab one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you and stand and turn to James chapter 2. It's on page 981 in those Bibles. And when we're done reading together, I want to invite you to keep your your Bible open because we're going to look at a few of the verses that follow it uh, throughout our sermon. But let's read together James chapter 2, the first four verses. My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into your assembly... And if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you're there's one wearing the fine clothes and say, have a seat here, please, while to the one who is poor you say, stand there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Please be seated. So there's the big question in verse four. Have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? Are you playing favorites? Are you showing in unnecessary partiality? Now, James started by, uh, by affirming a bit of what the goal is, that we are a community that believes in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But it seems that for this young first century church in Jerusalem, that they had a bit of a soft spot for money, power, and influence. And my guess is that as, as we sit here and hear about that, we would be tremendously empathetic. And it seems that, that James is a bit concerned that what this church is doing, as is is this church is starting out, is perhaps creating a bit of a two-cabin system. Okay, you know what I'm talking about. You've had this experience uh, at the airport where the, the person comes on and says, all right, so welcome now. We're going to b- begin boarding our 100K, our premier gold, black, diamond, silver, whatever color we choose to put on it. And you're invited to come on the plane first. The rest of you hang out. We'll be board- boarding steerage shortly. Okay. <laughs> the James is, is somehow concerned that there's going to be a bit of a two cabin system where there are haves and have-nots. There's first class and there's coach. And in this question about making distinctions and noting about making distinctions about what people might be wearing, about rich uh, or poor, he's saying, remember, this community that we are creating is not to be a two-cabin system. We are all in this together. Well, as James continues in verses five through seven, it's three verses with four questions. I invite you to hear these questions. Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has God, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you. Now, while we don't have as many of the specific details 
that James was working with, as we do say in many of the books of Paul, where we're able to, scholars have helped us figure out very specific circumstances that created a, a set of words that the apostle Paul would give us. It's a lot less clear with what was going on in Jerusalem that would cause James to say what he has. But what's, is, what is clear is this is that for James, there is no doubt a very prominent concern to care for the poor, to welcome the poor. There is a warning against doing anything that might exploit or oppress. And no doubt it was a series of questions that the church needed to take very seriously. And I imagine that as these questions come in rapid succession, there would just be the opportunity to, for the hearers to stop and reflect for themselves around questions of how am I thinking about people? How am I treating people? Why am I treating people like that? Am I treating them that way for what maybe I have to gain from it? In any event, James is concerned and calls the church to evaluate, in essence, why do you treat people the way that you treat them? In verse 8, it continues. No questions this time. Really, just a reminder. You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for, the, for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What's going on here? This is James, in essence, making a big deal about this fact, love your neighbor. Though it, pardon the pun, might not be as sexy as a transgression like adultery. He's still saying, look, a sin's a sin's a sin. And it's his way of leveling the playing field. Of saying, to miss, to miss one of these things is to break the entire law. And in so doing, it, it, it levels the playing field in reminding the whole community that you also are one who is in need of Jesus. I imagine the whole community would hear these words and go, oh yeah, though I might not do this, the reality is that I still sin. It's simply a call to remember that we need something beyond ourselves to save and rescue us. And whoever is coming in the doors of this assembly is no doubt in need of that. Verses 12 and 13. Here are these two, these final two verses that we'll read as good news. James encourages a community. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, really, really great statement here. That the law is not there to, con to be some sort of killjoy or to condemn anybody who might be having a little bit of fun. 
The law is there to actually provide freedom, to set us free to be in great relationships and to participate with the living God. And then, of course, this last line, so significant, mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember, James is speaking to community, to a community. He's trying to coach them on what it means to follow Jesus in the first century. And what he's doing is inviting them to be a community that demonstrates mercy, that demonstrates mercy over judgment. So in effect, James questions and his comments have the effect of moving this church those who believe in Jesus away from favoritism and partiality and judgment and seeks to move it towards mercy and justice and grace. A pastor friend of mine shares a story of people watching. He finds himself at a shopping mall. His family has gone off to uh, do some shopping in another place, perhaps grab something to eat. And so he finds himself alone, just sitting there in a mall, watching people and making judgments. And as he's, he's uh, watching these people, he finds himself making comments that perhaps we, we would all make, maybe being a little bit snarky comments like, wow, I don't know why that guy's buying a new shirt. It looks like what he really needs is some new shoes. You know, maybe he sees uh, some, some parents with some kids that, that are acting up and finds himself judging it. You know, why, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you instead do this? In any event, he finds himself uh, people watching and Im immediately judging these people. Well, as he discovers what he's doing, he stops himself. And as he continues to reflect, he goes a little bit deeper and finds that, yes, indeed, he is noticing and noticing perhaps some of the bad things about these people. And the truth of the matter that he comes to is that, you know what? The reality is that I do know the worst thing about everybody I've seen. And the worst thing is that they are a broken, damaged citizen in a fallen world. They too are sinners. He sees all these people and finds himself going, really, regardless of what they're wearing, what they're doing, how they look, I know the worst thing about them. Well, then, as he transitions to go, how can this be different? He finds himself going, but maybe I also know the best thing about them. The best thing about them is that they are a unique and unrepeatable miracle. They are a created child of the king that has worth for that reason alone. And to boot, I know this person to be one that, that the God revealed in Jesus Christ is absolutely crazy about. That's the best thing about him. So I already, of all these people that I see at the mall, I know the best thing about them and I know the worst thing about them. I know the worst thing about them. I know the best thing about them. And then from there, he says, so I just sat there and begin to, 
began to ascribe worth, to think about how, what does God want for this person? How is it different than maybe my initial judgment? How does God want God's love to be known to this person? How might this person be healed, rescued, or redeemed? And he shared that as he ascribed worth to people, tried to have the mind of Christ for them, it was a life-changing experience that the love that was boiling up in him was uncontainable. I hope that we can become a community that moves from just judgment to justice and mercy. And I think we do that by becoming a community that is committed to ascribing worth. So how do we do that? How might we ascribe worth? Three quick reflections. How about if we ascribe worth by avoiding comparison? In verse four, James talked about, you have made distinctions and become really evil. This sense of comparison is really not working out so well for you. One of the ways that we hear about this sense of comparison in our culture is through the, the news that we hear really throughout the country, but that ramps up all the more here in Seattle about income inequality and the growing gap that's there. In a recent interview that, uh, that comedian uh, and entertainer Chris Rock had with a New York Times uh, columnist, he got serious. And he stopped and said, if, if poor people knew how rich rich people are, there would be riots in the streets. Chris Rock speaking that there is a resentment that is present and that perhaps is growing. And I wonder if that's part of what James is trying to warn the church against. Let us not foster that sense of resentment. But this is hard for us, right? Because I'll speak for myself that I, I tend to really, to not be one of those people that thinks of myself as rich because there's always somebody that's going to be richer than I am. Even as, as I might, you know, get that, get that cool new car stereo loaded up into my car, there's going to be somebody that has a cooler CD player than mine. Okay. The rich guy. I'm not that guy. We have a hard time because there's a, there's a nuance to this, right? And what I want to call us to is that while it's easy for us to go, I might not be on, on an extreme end of the rich or poor spectrum, how might there be habits where we're making simple judgments through comparison that actually create a degree of resentment? What if we are to relinquish our tendency, perhaps even a right we have to measure ourselves, and, to, and particularly to measure ourselves against other Christians. What if we relinquished this ability, this desire, this need to compare, this need to measure? Second, ascribe worth by finding new friends. Okay, what am I saying here? 
Okay, I'm not saying, so lose all the friends you already have. In fact, this question came up as the university ministry staff mused on this passage this past week. Uh, In showing partiality, is it okay to have good friends, if not best friends, your besties? What do we do with this? And we worked with the reality that, that, wait a minute, it, it didn't Jesus, James' example in this whole thing, have an inner circle of friends that he showed partiality to? We call them the 12, but then even within the 12, he had the three, right? Well, one of the things that we, that, that in looking at that example, we can affirm that, hey, friendships are great. Friendships are good. In the New Testament, we hear that actually within the community of faith, our friendships actually become more like kinship. We are actually brothers and sisters in Christ, that there is an intimacy that is, that is celebrated in the New Testament. But here's what I want to draw attention to. Perhaps you've been on that side, even in the church, in a moment where you needed community, you needed friends, and maybe, maybe even showed up to church, and nobody reached a hand out. That you went into a fellowship hour, and it seemed like everybody already knew everybody. Man, I'm so busy, I don't have time for new friends. I just need to cultivate the ones that I have. My fear is that in such a mentality, we create, often unknowingly, cliques. In this church, we've talked a lot about this thing that we call sticky faith, where we talk about the generations being together and interacting as friends and brothers and sisters in Christ for the kind of the mutual building up of each other and the kingdom. That's sticky faith. Sticky faith is a great thing. Let's embrace sticky faith over clicky faith to orient our, ourselves, that, to have groups of friends that look outward, not merely look inward. That's what I mean by ascribing worth is inviting new friendships and, and gaining new friendships, being friends. Finally, ascribe worth by welcoming the poor, by serving the poor. Now, this is equal opportunity. I want to point out that that James makes this comment very directly about welcoming and and serving the poor and its equal opportunity. He's not saying it's just the responsibility of the rich to serve the poor. It's also the responsibility of the poor to serve the poor. I was trying to use back in the spring of 1998 the excuse that I saw myself as a poor college student that I was trying to use that as an excuse to not go on world deputation. But I did go on deputation, and in 1998, I got to go to the Republic of Haiti. Many of you know Haiti's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And the experience that I had there was predictably impacting. The need there is so obvious. There wasn't any place that you could go without an opportunity to serve, to hear somebody's story, and to engage the, the, the desperation, if not the complexity, of poverty. And while there was no doubt, especially in those first few weeks, a judgment that I led with, of why wouldn't these people do this? How come they can't get their infrastructure right? Why wouldn't you spend more money on water? How come they can't just work harder? 
Why can't we get the funds to land where they need to go? Well, that's when I began to understand the complexity of poverty, the complexity of being poor. And what it led me to do was ask questions. Why are things the way they are? To hear stories of people that in so many ways seemed nothing like me. But as we would share our stories, we began to find the places where I'm just a man in need talking to another man in need. I'm just another man talking to a man who is saved by grace as a man who knows myself to be saved by grace. When we serve the poor, and it's usually easier for us to go someplace else and serve the poor, the hope is that we come back to our community willing to do the same thing, willing to ask questions and hear stories. And in doing so, we ascribe worth to those that we're in front of. Can we become a community that ascribes worth, a community of mercy? N.T. Wright says the point of justice and mercy is not they deserve it, but this is the way God's world should be. And we are called to do those things that anticipate the way God's world will be. Perhaps even as you sit here right now, you can think of somebody who has lost their job. You can think of somebody who's poor, who's sick. Maybe you're thinking of yourself. And what I invite you to think is, what does God want for that person? What, how does God want to heal, to love, to rescue, to redeem that person? Ascribing worth means we as individuals in a community seek to participate in whatever that imagination might reveal? How might we participate in bringing about what God hopes about the way things will be for individuals, for our community, and for the world? Jesus loves us and desires for us to be a community that shares that with all we come into contact with. Let's pray. God, help us to be a community that ascribes worth. Help us to be a community that demonstrates mercy. Help us be a community that, that shares hope. God, may we know your goodness in real ways and share that goodness in equally real ways. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.